Today on the podcast, we had the pleasure of speaking with Robert Edwards, the voice of Squash, a man who's forgotten more about Squash than I'll ever know. Uh, we talked about everything from the Leaks uh, Premier League and British Open in Wales, introducing Ahmed Barada at the Pyramids and playing golf with Jonathan Power uh, in Qatar. Enjoy the stories and enjoy the podcast. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Robert, uh, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for doing the podcast. It's a new podcast, and um, I'm just uh, trying to get uh, some interesting squash uh, content uh, out there in the podcast world. And thanks a lot for agreeing uh, to do it. Yeah. How's life? In, you're now you're in the, uh, the south of France, is that right? No, I'm in, I'm in the north of France, in Ooh. southern Brittany, which is very beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weather's better than Britain, uh, but not as hot as where you are. <laughs> no, no. Actually, it's winter here now, but it's still, uh, I was out playing golf yesterday and I was sweating. So uh, uh, That's it's lovely. Quite nice. Uh, and when did you, uh, originally, you're, you're Welsh, Welshman. Yes, I am indeed. Yeah, and when did you move uh, to France? Yeah. Well, we, my wife and I lived in, in West Wales for a while and we built a rather special 600-year-old home, which we'd done together. Mm. An unusual thing happened. We got headhunted by a, a financier in London, uh, not expecting to sell, sold our property, and then sat down and said, like, where the hell are we going to live now? And um, my wife came up with a suggestion of France, which appealed to me. Um, all I need is an airport to continue what I was doing and internet was wonderful. So that was it. So we bought a, a really lovely old couple of hundred year old manoir, uh, which has got some nice features. And uh, yeah, we're very happy here and a golf course close by. That's fantastic. Well, uh, now uh, getting uh, to the squash side of things, uh, sure. how did you, uh, how did you get started with your career in the world of uh, professional squash? It's, uh, it's quite an amazing story, really. I'd finished playing and I'd made a speech in Cardiff Castle, which was to all different sports in Wales, rugby, cricket, soccer, everything. And I was the main speaker on the night, made a, a, a semi-humorous speech, the usual thing, joking at the English, etc. Uh -huh. And at the end of it, I, I left to go to a private party and um, apparently a gentleman was trying to contact me um, a Canadian uh, who lived in the islands in the in the Mediterranean and he he, uh, he eventually tracked me down about three days later and said look I, I I'm really keen to start publicizing squash as a show and I've seen you I've been looking for the, what I'm going to call the voice of squash for the last 10 years and you are it. I was at the do in the Cardiff Castle. I heard you speaking. And that's what we need for squash. And I'd love you to do it. And uh, I thought it was a, I thought he was joking. I'd only ever presented or commentated or anything in Wales. So I knew everybody, everybody knew me. Um, and the next thing I know, three days later, I was on a plane. And uh, I was talking live to a, like a million people for the first time in my life about squash. And this guy called Trevor Marshall uh, was a real showman said, Robert, the only advice I'd give you is this, just be yourself. 
And I've done that for the last 30 years and it was the best bit of advice I've ever had. As soon as I stopped thinking about one million people staring and I started thinking about, well, I'm talking about saying that's a love of mine. Life became very easy and I've carried that right the way through to today. And I, I like Trevor, agree. The only way forward for this fantastic game is to combine it as a show. You have to really give the people what they want. And that's atmosphere. You have to show tears. You have to show blood, thunder, all the things that go with it. You know, and that's, I pen certain terms for the players, you know, um, which work. They were Marines. They were champions. And that would be David Palmer, yeah, the Marine. That's why I've come back. Yeah, I stuck, yes, <laughs> David, I'm sorry, I gave him that, and it stuck. I mean, a lot of them yeah. did well, stick. It's, a fanta- and, uh, it's, a, it's appropriate for, uh, for David, I think. He, he, uh, it is indeed. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. That's something, uh, I mean, as we're watching the Australian Open uh, tennis, I mean, you see uh, guys yes. like McEnroe and Courier and, and other uh, pros out there after yeah. matches speaking to the players and having a, having a good laugh with them. Uh, and that's sure. exactly uh, the way I saw it with you uh, after the matches. Uh, the, the players seem to really, uh, I mean, obviously you, you know them all and they, they all say well, re- really well with you. Um, sure. What was the, uh, the, the first few events that you, uh, you did to get you started uh, as the voice of squad? Well, it, the one thing I learned, and it was the biggest shock of my life, was the difference from amateur squash to professional squash. Um, right. Like everybody else, I'd, I'd played, played to a good standard. And I remember a couple of my mates and myself who played in Wales, traveling up to see the British Open in, in when it was in London. And we sat there for the first match in absolute silence. Nobody spoke. Two players walked in, a referee sat on the top of a glass back wall and told us their names, called a score, they walked off and left. It was (laughs) the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life, except for the fact that they played squash pretty good. Um, That was my first introduction. And then when I was in Wales at the end of playing, uh, and I had a, a call from a guy called Adrian Davis, they called The Wizard, um, who was in the world's top 20, 30, I suppose, 30. Um, and in Wales was a, a very much a, a big cheese. And he asked me if I'd help him get, get something going. At the time, they had the British Professional League. So what I did is I rang a guy who is probably the second biggest uh, entrepreneur, uh, businessman that Wales has ever seen, a guy called Gerald Leake, who owns Leakes, right. uh, which is a massive, massive, massive business. Um, rang him up, he'd heard of me through squash and arranged to meet me, we had a little hit um, and at the end of it I put a package to him to start the Leaks Welsh Wizards the end of that is Gerald bought into the idea he has stayed a lifelong friend um, and during our time together I think about five or six years we did the Leaks Welsh Wizards we actually managed to win it, win the league twice with people like Jansha playing for us, Chris Robertson playing for us. So that was a, uh, uh, a professional Park. premier, a uh, professional squash league in Wales. It is. Okay. Yeah. And we took it to another level. We put a show on, we had p- ticket sales. People were buying out the tickets before we started the season. We were sold out. And I think it culminated in a quite a big shock in Wales because squash was unheard of. Um, we ended up by winning the uh, BBC, 
uh, a team of the year award, which was really remarkable. That was over rugby and cricket and soccer and everything else. Yeah, I, I actually um, have a uh, I have a colleague, a Welsh colleague. I work here in the UAE at a uh, at a university, and he sure he, he brings up leeks squash all the time. Yeah. He, he's not a squash player, but he says he remembers yeah. it from, from back in those days. Yeah, it, well, Gerald was was. He was. He is an enormous tycoon. I mean, he's an amazing man, and he's a dear, dear friend. Um, and he, it was like his fun. The, the the money he gave us was his his fun. He turned up at all the events with his friends, and we used to play on a Friday night with like the world three or four of the world's top ten players. We'd play doubles with him and his mates, which was quite funny. So it was a real touchy feely event, and. He asked me, where can we go from here? And I said, well, the next thing you need to do is to put on a big event. Um, I don't want to do it, but, you know, I can arrange for you to meet the PSA, uh, who were then, it had their offices in Cardiff. And I knew the people very well. And I said, I'd, I'd do that, do a world tournament. And um, we eventually came the, back uh, to me British and said, Open. I'll do it. Well, he started, first of all, with uh, five leaks classics. Okay. Um, and they were the world's top 32 players, men and women. Um, and we put them on in Cardiff. I'd never done anything like it in my life. Didn't want to do it. Gerald said he'd do it as long as I was the tech tournament director and presenter. So I did do it. Um, and it was my first time coming face to face with some of the monsters of the game, you know. And I suddenly saw the difference between amateur and professional. And so I loved that it. Time but it was much been, uh, harder. At that time, it would have been uh, well, we, Jahangir and Jancher's uh, heyday, correct? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Chris Dittmar, um, mm. Brett and Rodney Martin, those were the sort of guys, and they were tough. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I interviewed them, they wanted to know my credentials. I mean, who the hell are you? You know, you're, you're nothing, mate. You know, I'm a world top player, and it took a long time to break that. I think it took me at least five years to break the Martin brothers. Right. Um, and then one day, many years later, they suddenly turned around like I was their best mate. And it was all, we were mates. And it just flew from there. And all the players seemed to accept me. I think it was a bit of a father figure. And they came to me for advice. And it made interviewing them better because it was fun. And if it was, you know, if something had happened, it was a horrible match. I called it as a horrible match, you know. Yeah. Um, and the players responded to that. I, I think the biggest lesson I had was Chris Dittmar on my very first day uh, sitting with the Martin brothers and they were a tough team, trust me. And um, he said to me, uh, Robert, um, uh, do you play this game? And I suddenly realized this is quite an important answer to have yeah. their respect. Yeah. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, good answer, my friend. And what he was making was the point is, we get lost by how many people come up to us in hotels and things and say, I play a bit of squash, you know, how long would I last with Jahangir? Would I win five points? Would I win six? Yeah. And how do you begin to tell them that they were never going to win a point if they stayed on court for a year? No, exactly. And I used to be polite, but you do lose that politeness. The analogy I eventually used to say was, uh, let me ask you another question. If you were to fight Mike Tyson at his very best, how many times would you think you'd be there? How many minutes? And they said, oh, that's ridiculous. He'd kill me. I said, so would you hang my friend. Right. Very hard for people to interpret the differences between them. And the players liked the fact that I stood between them and the crowd and explained, 
These guys are real athletes of the highest possible order, and they're tough. Yeah, and that's something uh, they probably appreciated uh, even more simply because it didn't uh, exist before that. It didn't. It was a t it, the world changed for squash around that time, and I was in the right place, the right time, and um, and I just seemed to love it. It was it was great. And next thing I know, I'm flying around the world doing twelve, fifteen tournaments a year, and meeting people I've never met. And the world changed. It changed for me. It changed for squash. Um, and one of the things that it, it, people say occasionally, what you know, what you love about it. I love the fact that I have friends out there that have played and I remember talking to them. Maybe they'd come to my suite in the hotel and sit down. I'd say, whatever's happening at the moment, remember this, you and I are privileged. We do something special. And one day, my friend, when you sat down with your grandchildren, remember this, we are so lucky. And do you know how many of those guys I still am friends with? I still email, I hear from their kids and what have you. And that's what's special. It really is a family, but it's a hell of a one to get the trust from. So uh, do you think uh, just the fact that you've been doing, had been doing this for such a long time, that that, uh, that basically just uh, that helps you with the, with the previous uh, generation and the current generation helps it make, make it easier for you to do what you have to do? Yeah, it does. I, I think one of the things that stuck in my mind was um, many years ago, I had a, a, there was a guy called Joe Shaw, who a lot of squash players will remember in Australia, tough, tough man, was a coach, was hated and loved in equal proportion. Um, and Joe Shaw sent me an email or a fax in those days, I think, uh, saying, look, I've got a young kid called David Palmer coming over to you, Robert. Just keep an eye out for him, will you? And I wrote back and said, yeah, sure, no problem. And David turned up and he was trying to get through qualification. As you know, qualification is not a sellout thing. It, it, it's it's a, a blood and guts thing where the guys have to get through to earn any money. It's tough. Yeah. And um, I watched him a couple of times and I realized that he was a, a very, very gutsy guy. Not as talented as many, not a, not a Rodney Martin, but he had the will and the desire. We sort of semi-spoke and I've made the comment, if you need anything, give me a call and we stayed friends. And then he, when I retired from the PSA in 2007 at the World Open in Bermuda in, in a, a lovely thing that the, the television put on for the audience, which was the players talking about my career. And one of the things he said in that was he'd seen me at the British Open in uh, Cardiff and when he was a qualifier. And he said the opening and the music and the presentation made him want to get better so that he could be one of the players out there receiving this. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. has always stuck with me, and I think it summed it up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could imagine if, you know, anyone can imagine if you were a player at that level and yeah. you, you saw what you, you know, what you could achieve yeah. and get to that point, yeah. that you'd want to achieve that and, and get there. So. And it also brought more money onto the tour as well because, you know, suddenly people, I, as the PSA World Tour technical director, one of the things I'd do is fly out to a tournament and chat to them about how to prepare it and what to do and uh, the technical side as well as, you know, the planes. And the, the, the biggest thing was to get them to understand that you had to send a chill through that crowd. You know, I never wanted to see a crowd like I saw at the British Open that time I went up with my friends. I wanted to see 
a crowd that were, their eyes are wide open. They're frightened to speak to their friend because they might miss a second of it. And when you tell them the truth of what's happening and you explain to them the depth of what the players are going through or something tragic has happened. One of the players got, Simon Park got um, uh, testicular cancer. And we talked about that out front. And so you bring some tears, you bring some, but it's reality. And that's what people love. They don't want this, ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome? That's just boring. Yeah, it's it got to be so much more. Gives the fan an opportunity to see who the players are, uh, uh, yeah. to, uh, a little bit of, about their personality and who they are. And that's what you bring yeah, up. And yeah. Absolutely, Jerry. And for me, that was, that was vital. And I also wanted the, the, the crowd to respect the players for what they did. Um, and that was very important to me as well. And that was something I used to demand from the audiences. And they responded. Now, uh, Robert, I, in doing a, my prep for interviewing you, I, I came across the name of uh, a good, you know, a friend of yours, uh, apparently a, a very good squash player at the highest level, a, a Scottish uh, uh, player by the name of Colin Keith. Um, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about, um, if you don't mind, I know it might be difficult, uh, but uh, no. about your friendship uh, and uh, who he was, because... Uh, Obviously, he was quite a talent. Yeah, it, it, Colin, Colin was a very talented boy. Never really reached what he should have reached because he wasn't around when squash broke into the next level. I met him first. He was playing for Manchester Northern uh, in the British League. Of course, we had the league's Welsh Wizards. And um, he, uh, we went up and played them uh, the one day and uh, our number one on the night was Chris Robertson, who was, I think, three in the world at the time. And he, the big boast with Chris, with Robbo, he, he never, ever lost to people ranked below him. He was a real tough competitor, one of the fastest yeah. men I ever saw. I actually remember, uh, I remember Chris, like, watching videos. We only had videos back in the day, but he was one of the guys that I used to try to emulate as a player. He was... <laughs> Such great touch for back then, uh, especially the oh, volley drops. His movement was superb. You know, he. I think people say who was the best movers. I think two of the best movers I ever saw in my life was Janshir and Robbo. I'm sorry mean, for moved, interrupting you know. there. But sorry. No, it's okay. Well, Robbo played him, and I, if I'm honest with you, I'd already ticked this off as the manager that we had one in the bag. I saw Robbo beating him fairly easy. Um, instead, uh, Colin won in a hell of a match. It was a pig fight. And it was great to watch. I mean, I was sad we lost, but I mean, I, I could still appreciate what it meant. And he was she- shouting and cheering. And after the match, um, we shared a beer together and a chat. And he said, Robert, you know, what you bring in to squash really, really is what I want. So you're bringing a show to it and everything else. And we'd only really started then. And I said, you know, Colin, I think this is the way forward. Very bright boy, actually. And, um, End result was, he said, can I have your number? Maybe we can chat. And he used to ring up and he was very depressed about where squash was going. Um, and there was a sad side to squash. I mean, when you, when you had uh, uh, maybe four or five of the world's best players at a club and they're charging five pounds to watch and um, people you know, think it's peanuts and it was treated like trash. It was never treated with respect. And I hated that. Yeah. Uh, and so did he. Um, and I remember talking to him and saying, you know, Colin, you just have to have a bit of belief, my friend. You've got to get out there, get on the world tour. You've got to knock over these guys. You know, you've done it with Robert. 
And we had these calls. And then one day he rang me on a Sunday and in Wales and took the call. And that was, he was saying he was depressed about the, you know, his future and everything. And very sadly, the next news I had was that he'd unfortunately um, killed himself by oh. stepping off a building. Oh man. Um, and Squash lost uh, a really lovely man. Um, and, and I knew him only too short. It should have been longer. He should have played on the tour. I don't think he'd have ever made world top five, but he'd definitely have made world top 10. Yeah. Um, and he was, um, he was a genuine guy. And Squash seems to be filled with these lovely people. Um, we have loads and loads of them. Absolutely. Um, this new opening that's coming out of Egypt. I mean, it's producing guys who in the past we never had much to do with because they were um, Arab. They would be semi-known, not really known. Do you think, and then uh, suddenly you think that talent, comes uh, along. Do you think, do you think the talent in Egypt was always there? And that we, that, that, that squash I mean, never really tapped into it for some uh, reason or another. You're absolutely right. I think the reason is a little bit the same as with India. The very, it, it's still, whether we like it or not, it's a wealthy man's game in some of these countries. Um, and when you play at these clubs and the clubs in Egypt, and I'm sure you know this, Jerry, um, are different. They're massive. They're huge clubs. It's not like four courts and a, yeah. uh, and a bar. I mean, they're enormous <laughs> and they cover many sports and it's family used and and I can remember going to El Gazira Club years ago to talk to them about putting on a tournament. And I, the entrance, you walk down the center and there's like eight courts either side. Right. And every single court had youngsters on it, three or four on the court doing routines and five or six waiting to go on every court. And I stopped and watched. And, you know, I always joke about the, the Egyptian wrist. These kids, they're like, 10 years of age yeah they all knew how to play drops counter drops they were lifting the ball they were they were blocking for god's sake they knew how to block i, I find it so amusing <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, <laughs> well i managed ahmed barada and um he he helped squash a lot yeah, um, but, he was a nightmare on the court and as as a man as his manager and also presented him so many times I had a joy because he, he brought, he knew how to treat an audience. He knew how to create feeling. Yeah. Um, he later became an actor and, and a pop singer. So, yeah. But, well, that, you know, that was something when, when watching his matches, it was, there, it was palpable. You could, you, whoever he played, <laughs> there, there was something in it, you know? Well, there was, I mean, it, he had a biggest pair of hips I ever saw in my life. And he used to go sideways crab, like across the, across the, um, the team right and to get past him sometimes you needed a tank and I knew that <laughs> and the players knew it yeah. but I tell you what the crowd adored him they adored him um, and I I remember doing Al-Ahram the first time and when I got there I mean it was amazing imagine I'm you're doing squash originally in a place like God beneath with two courts and a gallery of 12 people suddenly you're out in the desert with a a two million pound setup. You've got a squash court sitting there in front of all the pyramids. The wind is blowing, and you've got an audience of five thousand people. Yeah. And suddenly, my juices were up, and I'm bringing out Barada. And you know, they, I said to them, "Guys, fantastic! How much have we got to spend for an opening show?" And they said, "Robert, we spent the money. There's nothing left. 
can you choreograph something? So I said, sure, okay, we'll do something. And what I did is we cut all the lights off. Every light went out. Only camera lights were on. And we measured how far it was for me to get onto the court unseen. I was dressed all in black. And I'd put Arada and six of the Egyptian players behind the front wall in the desert. And the pyramids are there all black. And I walked out to the center. The music crescendoed on the introduction. The voice said, please welcome Voice of Squash, blah, blah, blah. And bang. A spotlight picked me up. It's the only thing you can see in the desert. Crowd wonders what the hell is going on. The music has blown them away. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, viewers from around the world, I will not tell you where we are. Permit me to show you. And with that, I took my right hand out from my body. I went black and a pin light picked up my hand. I counted three and I clicked my fingers. And every light on every pyramid lit up. Wow. And you know, the crowd went nuts. I mean, can you imagine you light up the pyramids to start a squash tournament? And then, and then the, I said, the players speech in the background. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Do you know when Barada and the boys started running out of the desert and they had the Egyptian flag above their head fluttering in the wind, they went bananas. Yeah. And, you know, I sat there, stood there and thought, this is what it's all about. Well, it makes sense you know? now uh, looking at it that way and looking back uh, at it that way. I mean, even here in the UAE, in, in uh, Qatar, in uh, Saudi, where, there's a, where there are huge sure. Egyptian uh, populations, they come out in droves and they're so, yes. they're so loud and so uh, they love their players so much that uh, you wonder it's, why it's the most raucous. They are the most raucous crowd in the world for squash, but I love that. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they bleed for their players. And they don't, they, they don't make any nonsense about it. They only want an Egyptian to win. Yeah. But if they have two Egyptians in every final, they're happy. It's, it's how they are. I don't blame them. That's the way they feel. It's, that's good. Well, um, but the, I the think Egypt has brought so much to the game. Yeah, they have. I mean, the, the talent that's out there now, the personalities that are out there now, it's a, a, lot, uh, a lot of Egyptians, that's for sure. Great players. It's, yeah. Um, you know, Jerry, it's, it's, it, it, as we're going into a new era, these guys are becoming what I've always wanted them to be. They're intelligent, they're athletes, they're performers, they're professional in 99% of the ways. And in the Egyptian crowd that's there, virtually every single one of them, without fail, is family-orientated and respectful. Yeah. And yet they are still tigers on a court. Yeah, it was oh, quite a, a testament to uh, his family when Shorbagi gave uh, the world title to his uh, parents. A few Absolutely. It? Yeah. Um, and his mum is at every major tournament. She's a lovely lady, you know. His dad turns up just for finals. Um, right, right. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Shorbagi's uh, mother is, is a driving force for them. Um, she's got the, she's got two sons at the top of the the game right now. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Marwan has come through re recently, and and it's great to see him. There's always room at the top for talent. And one of the the boys I've always thought a great deal of is Ali Farag, and um, yeah. I met him for the first time in Qatar about five, four years, five years ago, 
And he came through, I think, qualification. And I went out and did a talk on him. And at the end of it, his parents came with him to thank me. And I looked at this kid. He was intelligent. He was bright. He was the sort of kid who certainly had the, the ability to go into commerce and do very well. And he said to me, I'm not sure about my future, you know, Robert. We had a little chat and I said, look, you've got the qualifications. Go out and blow the squash world up away. Have a great time. You've got all the talent. You're really, you're one of the best I've ever seen at your age. You're, you're a real star, son. I said, go out there and do it. And after three, four, five years, go back to the commerce. It'll still be there, but you'll have done something that is so special. It will live with you and your family forever. And um, we've kept up that friendship ever since. And his parents were very grateful and we've stayed good friends. And whenever I see his results or anything, I have a little smile to myself. Kid's good. Yeah, and he's absolutely. a good guy as well, like so many. Yeah. Actually, I spoke with uh, Mike Way uh, last week and he, we brought up Ali, uh, obviously, with his results. Uh, doing, he did well in the Tournament yeah. of Champions. And he was just saying how... Uh, you know, the guy just graduated from Harvard with an engineering uh, degree. And he, yeah. You know, the, yeah. he could have gone Very that bright. way. His, his parents, yeah. when you meet his parents, you can see where it comes from as well. I mean, the respect and the way that they are. They're really right. nice people. Um, and so many of these boys, you know, you, you mentioned Mohammed and, and Marwan. I mean, their parents as well. Tarek. Um, yeah. And I, one of my favorites, Rami. Um, Rami yeah. and I have a very special relationship. I think we're both a little bit crazy and we, we just <laughs> love each other for that. You know, yeah. I spent a little bit of time with him not so long ago privately, which we don't always get to have, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Well, he's had, uh, was, for him, I mean, maybe you can, uh, enlighten us a little bit. Uh, if, uh, he's had a, a bit of a struggle for him lately, yeah. given, given his injuries and given, you know, to me anyways, if, if he's 75%, he's number one in the world. Um, uh, I think Rami, yeah. God forbid his body. I've always said if Rami's body was the body of Mohammed al Shabagi, he would be untouchable at any era. Um, yeah. It's only his body has, keeps breaking down. Um, yeah. And he's played through it. His, his actual touch, feel, and movement. Is genius. Yeah, he does things that uh, no one else can do with the ball. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I remember doing, I was doing the Saudi International, and he turned up with his brother to have a hit. And uh, before he had a match that night, instead of playing together, they both went on one court each. And my office during the day had a glass wall, which literally was the side of the court that uh, Rami was on. He'd come into my office, we had a little chat, and he, he went on to have a hit. Now I'm waiting for him to do some set routines, which is normal and all the pros do them and you know them backwards. And he didn't do that at all. He warmed the ball up for two minutes and then he started playing the most ridiculous shot you've ever seen in your life. He was flicking a backhand up, then turning around completely and hitting over his head cross-court nicks. I mean, the shot doesn't exist in squash. No. It's a joke. It's silly. It's, it's, you would never tell a player to do it. You know, he spent 20 minutes doing that. Jeez. When he came off, I said, you're crazy. What the <laughs> hell was that? Yeah. He said, oh, I get bored, Robert. I get bored. And he gets bored sometimes because he's got so many choices. Yeah. When he arrives on the ball, usually a player thinks, I'm going to hold it. Or I'm going to cut it in short. Or I'm going to drive it to a length. 
when Rami arrives, he's thinking, oh, yeah, hang on a sec. I've got another 10 choices here. And you can almost see the brain thinking. He is, he is for me, and I've seen Jahangir, I've seen Jansher, I've seen all of them, uh, Jeff, Jonah, the lot. And for me, when, when his body is perfect, he's, I think he's the best I've ever seen. I agree. I agree. It's unfortunate yeah. that he's had these, uh, this injury. Uh, it, yeah, it's obviously it kept him from, from training. He doesn't look as fit as he normally does. And that's just because he can't do the work that he, he would normally have to do. But you've, you've been through, uh, obviously you were there for the, uh, another mercurial uh, uh, talent, Jonathan Power and his rivalry <laughs> with uh, Peter Nickel. Now, I know you were around for all of that. Could you uh, give us a, an anecdote or two in terms of uh, what it must have been like, uh, especially back when the, I think back in the late 90s, that's yeah. when the rivalry well, was very, uh, it was very palpable. And it was, it was clear that. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting because they're totally different personalities. Peter Nickel um, was straight up and down. Just a great player. Great, great brain great work rate, very, one of the truly first professional players. And I remember seeing Peter come from nowhere, really, coming through, coming through. And you always knew he was going to be special. Um, and at that time, uh, Jansha uh, or Dipma used to win everything. They were, uh, and, and Jahangir was still hanging around then. So between them, they cut the world top events up. And Peter was always just being the bridesmaid and what have you. And I remember doing the British Open the year that Peter beat him. And um, he got to the final and he won it. And I went on the court and I stood next to him. The crowd is just going crazy. And I've pulled the mic down so that the acoustics, I could talk to him without anybody really hearing what we're saying. And I said, Pete, would like this to be a really good you know, conversation. Um, when you're ready, mate. He said, yeah. And he walked away from me to compose himself. Uh, and then when he was ready, he came up and um, he taught his dad was in the front row and uh, Neil Harvey was there and uh, he stood there for a second. And I said, Pete, in your own words, I didn't even have to ask him anything in your own words. And he dedicated to his mother who had died. Right. Do you know that place? Poor, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was it was crushing. Right. And it was so brilliant. And he'd been so brilliant. And he brought so much charm and goodness to the game. Now, along comes Jonathan Power. And it's one of these matchups. You had Jansha and you had uh, Jahanga and Dipmar and Rodney Martin. And you, before that, you had Jonah and Jeff and all the rest. Well, Peter but was the first one to, uh, to take out, sort of take out Jansha, wasn't he? He, he, he started, was, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was, it was time. But then Jonathan comes along. Now, I've got to tell you, I have had great relationships with virtually every player on the tour. My starting with Jonathan was anything other than perfect. <laughs> I think Jonathan was a grunge dresser, a grunge thinker, looked at me, saw me as a, a Brit, you know, and you know, I was a bit sort of, bit, bit stayed for him, I think a bit cardboard. And we had an okay relationship. I could interview him, we'd talk, but it wasn't close. There was nobody could ever call that relationship close. Right. And at that time, he had Greg Gaultier under his arm, coming around the tour with him, sort of very much a, a Jonathan Power lover. Right. And um, 
I was in Qatar and Jonathan's turned up and I've turned up. I always turn up before to prepare everything. And I've arrived in Qatar and go down for breakfast about four days before the tournament. No players are around. They haven't arrived yet. I walk in. Who do I see sitting at the breakfast table? But Jonathan, I go, oh, God, no. I can't ignore him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sit with him because we don't have anything in common. This is going to be impossible. So eventually, I, hey, Jonathan, how you doing, mate? Oh, hi, Robert. Um, why don't you join me? And I think he's thinking, oh, God, I better invite this guy to join me. So right. I sit down and we have breakfast together. He says, what's your plans for the day? I said, well, Jonathan, I said, I'm, I've got a, a tea booked at the, at the golf club. Oh, great. He said, could I join you? And I didn't really want him to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't really fancy five hours with this guy with me because we just, you know, what, he turned What was he going to wear, right? Well, anything. I mean, he, he was, the funny thing was, he turns up and when we get there, um, I said, do you want to drive the buggy? And being polite, he's a young kid. Yeah, yeah, I'll drive. And you, I don't know if you've been around the course in Doha, it's it, the roads, the little roads to the greens and everything are very uphill and down and they're quite narrow. So, and these buggies are quite quick ones. Right. And he starts driving in any case, he nearly tips it over about four times. And by which time I'd started taking the mickey out of him and he'd started taking the mickey out of me. So the relationship was becoming a humorous one and we were okay. So the air cleared, there was nobody else around, it was just him and me. And eventually I said, Jonathan, I said, mate, I said, you've got a terrific sort of game at the front of the court, but you're an absolute rubbish driver. And he said, Robert, he said, didn't you know? I've never driven anything in my life. I haven't got a car license or anything. So I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> and he nearly tipped it over for about the fifth time. Do you know, it was funny. That tournament marked the okay between me and Jonathan. And from then on, it, it was like the, the Martin brothers. It was never really a problem from then. Right. Um, but a, another sort of off-the-wall thinker, Jonathan and, and Peter brought two total contrasts to the game. They were black and white. Yeah. Uh, but they had one thing in common. They were fabulous winners. And Jonathan on his day was special. Peter on his day was special. And you couldn't cut it between them. I mean, yeah. they, were, they were two great players. And they brought something to the game. I enjoyed that era. It was a good era. That was a fantastic um, era. The, the, the finals that they had together. And then there were also yeah. some other very good players that were coming up at that time. We mentioned David Palmer before. Terry yeah. Linku. He struggled against them early on. But then found his way. Yep. Johnny Terry White. Linku. Uh, a lot of those guys. It was a great era, and now we've got another uh, great era as well. Yes, indeed. Do you know, you, with those guys you just mentioned, I'm often asked, what's the best match you've ever seen in your life? And that's different from saying, which is the best player you've ever seen. Right. And one of the matches that will stick with me for all of my life was we were in Antwerp, um, in, in the tournament there, a huge tournament. I think it was 1992 World Open. And um, I was managing Johnny, I think, at the time. And he and, and Dave Johnny, was my best Johnny agent at all. Johnny White. Yeah. And Dave was probably the closest guy I was to on the tour. He, we, we had a great relationship. They both understood there was no way that I'd ever give either one of them one billionth of 1% extra than any other player. But our time together was our time, and that was fine. But I would never use it to give them any form of advantage. And... They wouldn't have asked it. I wouldn't have expected it. 
and the two of them made the final. And um, Johnny's parents came over from Aussie and um, Dave uh, had his family there. They'd come over and his wife was there, Mel. And it was, oh, so, so up. The two of them went on, the, the contrast in styles. A, they'd been friends since childhood. They thought the world of each other. Um, and they played one of the most amazing matches I've ever seen in my life. It was just out of this world, went to five. I think Dave saved uh, five match balls and eventually won it. Yeah. And um, that and the aftermath of it being with them will live with me always. That was that game and that match was just so, so special and a wonderful setting with a phenomenal audience. And, you know, Dave still talks about that one. Um, I think they both remember it as possibly their two biggest moments in the game. Well, it was, I, it was, to be part of it was special. I just, uh, anytime I watch Johnny White, uh, <laughs> it, it excites me. I mean, the shots that he plays, uh, the, the power and the, the creativity, <laughs> the corkscrew, uh, it, it's just amazing. And the diving, of course. You know, I think uh, the, the current... Uh, the thing now on tour is diving, but uh, Johnny White did it best, I, yeah. I'd say. He, he did it almost like an Olympic skill. Do you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you asked for an, an anecdote about these guys. One of the funniest things ever, we were, I was in India, and I'd, I'd never met John White. He'd just come out on the tour, and he used to wear pebble-thick glasses at the time. And um, he is typical Australian, sort of looked at you, and he's taking the mickey without saying a word, you know? And... Um, Johnny White turns up and we, we had this fabulous tournament. And uh, on his first round, I remember joking about him to the crowd, making them laugh. And when he finished and he'd won and he came out and I interviewed him. And again, I made jokes at him and, and the crowd laughed and he laughed, but sort of looked at me a bit sideways. And he won the second round. He won the third round. And we were, <laughs> I came out with him after the fight. I think it was the end of the semis. Uh, or the, uh, yeah, it was the end of the semis and he'd won and I was interviewing him and I'd given him hell all week with the crowd and they loved it. And um, as he stood there, he grabbed the microphone off me and the players will tell you that I have an expression, never, ever, ever touch the microphone. <laughs> and the reason being is if they gag or go down, I can't get them back in and they wander off. They don't know how to use it. They hold it. So John's grabbed my microphone and he's turned to the crowd and he said, this guy has given me hell for a week. He said, and I've had enough of it. He said, I want to see just how good he is. And this was a long time ago, and I could still hit a ball occasionally. And he said, uh, I want to play him. What do you think? <laughs> and the crowd, oh, to a man, 2,000 people. Oh, we want to see this. And I said, no, nah, John, you know, I said, What's, what saves you, my friend, is, is you're a boy and I'm a man, and it's not fair. Right. And, oh, they would not let it go. And we were staying in a place called the Tolly Gunge Club, which is very spectacular. And I was staying 50 yards from the thing. He said, come on, let's make him get, well, the, you know, the crowd didn't move. I had to go and change. I came back on and John's then, as you know, he hits the ball like a thunderclap. Yeah. And I know he's going to destroy me and make me look absolutely stupid. So <laughs> as we come on, I've said to him, so the crowd couldn't hear, look, if we play this, it won't be funny. You're just destroying me. They won't laugh at that. Let's play a doubles, mate. I said, and that way I can at least keep up a bit and we can each have a, a bit of the time. 
And we did. We played a doubles in front of that crowd. Do you know, not one of the 2,000 people left. Wow. They stayed to watch. And uh, it was very funny. It was very, very funny. He tries to tell one story. I don't think he's, it's, he's remembered it correctly, but he tells one where I've tried to run in and volley something short. And he's hit the ball so hard, it's hit me straight between the eyes. <laughs> I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that actually happened. But well, I know sure I was glad it, to get it. It could very well have happened playing him. But, uh, <laughs> but, Rob, but Robert, those... um, uh, I think we're just running out of time here. Uh, I, could, I could speak. For weeks, I think uh, we could spend a week here talking uh, squash. Uh, would you uh, give us the pleasure of coming back again uh, another day, at some point down the road? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it again, Jerry. It'd be nice to speak to you. It's and and I I appreciate very much what you do for squash, my friend. Uh, and and we uh, we all appreciate what you've done and what you do uh, over the years. I mean, uh, the memories of uh, my first exposure to you would have been, uh, of course, back during the days when things started to go viral with the, during the power and nickel yeah. era, but uh, you were around long before that. And uh, thank you for everything. And um, mm -hmm. thanks especially for coming on the podcast. It's been very special for me as well. As I said to those players, we are so, so lucky. What a great game. And thank uh, you, Jerry. Thank you.